So this is our our third night here tonight. How are you doing? Are you feeling more settled? Finally landing a little bit? <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> um I want to talk tonight about or like kind of the title of my talk tonight is Empathy Hurts, Compassion Connects and Heals. And I want to start with a um, poem by Mark Nepo. Having loved enough and lost enough, I'm no longer searching, just opening. No longer trying to make sense of pain, but trying to be a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub into a pearl. So we can talk for a while, but then we must listen the way rocks listen to the sea. And we can churn at all that goes wrong, but then we must lay down all distractions down and water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone. But seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it's a door into the endless breath that has no breather, into the surf that human shells call goddess. And I've lost my talk. Great. So I want to pick up a little bit on the discussion or the questions that we had and we had in the small groups about um, the difference of empathy and compassion. And Norman talked some about that yesterday, so some definitions of empathy, sympathy and compassion. And I just want to add a little bit to that um, that I find very helpful working a lot with clinicians and caregivers because what we often see there is um, what's often called uh, compassion burnout or compassion fatigue. And there are some questions whether that is actually um, the right terminology for what we're experiencing. And so let me just ask you this, and I know in some groups that came up today, has any of you ever felt connected, alive, and nurtured after a well-being with somebody who's suffering? Yes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I surely have. So there is something about compassion that not only gives to the other person, but also gives to us. And you can ask yourself, um, if you were going, if you, in the past, were going through a painful situation, or maybe you're doing right now, um, what has or what is or has been the most helpful to you? So the person who knows what you need to do and is all busy around you making sure you're getting fixed. Is that helpful? <laughs> right? And usually you can feel their anxiety, like, oh, I, I know what you have to do, I, you, you're fine, you're fine, like, we're, we, we, we have this under control. And you're like, mm. Um, the person who's clearly so distressed by your distress that you feel like you should be taking care of them, uh, or you, that you have to downplay your pain, if you had that, because you've really felt like that person cannot handle what you're going through. Um, not so helpful. Um, or the person who makes you feel seen and heard in your suffering, but is not in distress like you. 
but calm and confident and can stay with you and somebody who doesn't abandon you in your pain. That's hopeful, right? That's what we need. So, and in this situation, often words are not necessary, right? We talked about supportive touch today, and often what we just need, when, and it can be really like a small distress, it doesn't have to be something huge, right? So you come home, or like somebody said something, and you feel just upset, and then pretty much all you need is a hug. You don't need to be fixed, right? Um, so, because often what happens is when we are distressed, we will regress into much younger beings. Have you noticed that? Sometimes we feel like really small, right? Sometimes we even can put an age to that, like, oh, that just makes me feel like six years old again. And what helped back then also helps today. So what helps is touch, soothing sounds, and rocking, right? So sometimes rocking can help, we know that, it helps with our kids, and also it often helps actually when we're a little bit in distress, that can help us to calm us down. And um, I was walking back from like one of the meals today to our um, home, I saw a turkey mother with her little chicks, they're teensy, I mean they're just like this big, so they look like they're like a week old or something. And she made those sounds. It was very clear, like my nervous system um, connected to her sounds, which were very calm and soothing. Those were not like, I learned I'm in distress, be careful, the world is really dangerous kind of sounds, but it was like, no, everything's fine, we're cool, and then they were just bumbling along, right? So this is deeply, deeply ingrained into our uh, DNA. So what we need and appreciate most is compassion when we are distressed. And so we've talked about these different ways, so like self-compassion, compassion for others, and that there's actually, if we really look at it, not much difference. It just feels so different, right? So empathy. So um, there's a social neuroscientist in Germany. Um, her name is Tanya Singer, and she did um, like maybe 12 years ago or something, she did quite an interesting um, study, research study. What she did is uh, she got partners of functioning relationships and then she put one person into a brain scan. Actually, I think two, don't know exactly how they did it. But basically what they did is they would hurt one of the couple and notice what would happen in the other person's brain. And what they found was the other person will experience something in their brain that is related to our emotional pain circuitry, right? Very clearly so. And we know this, right? If a loved one goes through pain, we kind of feel that pain. So that is not really new. But then it was pretty amazing to um, see that. And, by the way, what helps both partners in a situation like that. If you were a researcher and we were saying, like, so what actually helps here to calm both people down? What would you have them do? <laughs> hold hands. Yes, hold hands. What that would do is that would calm the person who received the pain's alarm system down and the person who was watching their partner going through something painful. Right? And again, we know this, there's a lot of this just common sense, like, duh, right? Um, so what is very interesting is that what blocks empathy? What blocks empathy? So we can see that, like, with somebody we have love and we have concern about, that we have these, like, we feel their pain. And what blocks that? Two things. If we think that that person was behaving unfair, they deserve that, we don't feel empathy. And if for whatever reason we feel that this is some other, right? Other is really dangerous. Like as a species, we're really hardwired to be very empathic with ours, like our tribe. We don't have to be empathic with the other. And it's very, we see that very clearly, like in conflicts, in situation where we marginalize people, right? So it's a lot of making the other the other, and then that blocks our empathy. 
very easily. And it does that in it, it does that independently of like how educated you are, how empathic you are. There are some various and it's it's very important to be aware of this. Like where do we make somebody into another? Or where do we feel like they actually deserve that? And of course Hollywood plays with that big time, right? So like the bad guys, we usually don't really sympathize with them. It's just like, yeah, you deserve that, right? After all that what you've done. And it, it makes it very simplistic, right? So basically, we don't have to feel that. We can just feel with the good guys, but we are feeding into something that is actually not that evolved, and we have to be very careful of that. So then the next question is, um, can we train our capacity for empathy so that we can become more cooperative and pro-social? And the answer is yes, we can. <laughs> so what helps with all that pain? Because sometimes, sometimes, life ain't always the way. Sometimes it snows in April. Sometimes I feel so bad, so bad. Sometimes I wish life was never ending. And all good things, they say, never last. Rest in peace, Prince. So what they did um, next was they, Tanya Singer and her team, they enlisted um, Mathieu Ricard, who has been dubbed by the media as the happiest man alive. That's quite something to live up to, right? Um, I guess it helps if you're a Buddhist monk. <laughs> um, and... So he was the person who um, Richard Davidson put into an MRI scan like years ago, and they found that he was like off the charts with what we call in the brain kind of the happiness state in the brain that was really uh, like nothing like the research team had ever seen in a, quite a big sample of human beings. And they were like, wow, that's pretty amazing. So is that, is, was he born that way? Or was had that something to do with his training as a monk and living uh, in a silent retreat for three years? Or I think he actually has done that multiple times. And um, so he would be a good person. You would think like he really has compassion down, right? So if you're doing something new in research, you in the beginning really want to see, you want to see a big difference. So you can see, is there something that we can see? And then we can make it smaller, the sample sizes, right? Or the what we're looking at. So what they did is they put him into a brain scan, and first they said um, to what they would do is they would stress him. And I think they had him listen to like, I don't know, a tape of a woman screaming, so something that would really like get your nervous system really um, distressed. And um, what happened was, so he was doing compassion meditation, and to the surprise of the investigators, these meditative states did not activate parts of the brain that are normally activated by non-meditators when they think about others' pain. So Ricard described his meditative experience as a warm, positive state associated with strong pro-social motivation. He's quite elaborate, that guy, right? You can see that. Um, eloquent. Um, so... And then he was asked to not practice compassion. So turn that off, go back in there, <laughs> listen to that again, and see what's that like. So he would ask to put himself in an empathic state, was scanned while doing so. Now the appropriate circuits associated with empathic distress were activated. The empathic sharing, Ricard said, very quickly became intolerable to me and I felt emotionally exhausted, very similar to being burned out. So what he says is, without the support of love and compassion, empathy by itself is like an electric pump through which no water circulates and it will quickly overheat and burn. So that is, I think, super important because very often, just in everyday language, we will use empathy and compassion um, interchangeably, right? And so and often what we experience when we are with somebody's pain is we experience a mixture of empathy and compassion. 
So it's like all lumped together, and then we can call it either this or either that, right? But it's very important to look at, like, so, and especially for the caregivers here, or anybody who says, like, actually take on people's pain quite easily, right, to be more aware of that, that in order to be compassionate, you do not have to feel the other person's pain, like, really, like, their pain. So, and um, the way they also explain that is, so empathy is really something that is hardwired into you or into us, right? So this is really like one of the functions they think of the mirror neurons, right? So I see you in distress. I kind of feel, I know what you feel like, and this is really important for the survival of the species, right? Because if I can have a sense of how you're feeling, then as a tribe member, I will take care of you. Right? I will look after you. If I have no idea how you're feeling, that's one thing. And then also, of course, for our infants, right? They are not able to communicate with words, so we have to be able to read their needs. And we have to have an idea when they're in distress what's happening and how can, what can we do about that. So that is actually really important. Right? But it's more something that alerts us to something, like, oh, something I need to pay attention to, and then I can bring in the big guns of compassion. And the good thing about that is that we can train that. We can train to become more and more compassionate. This is what we're doing here. And there's actually, at this point, quite a lot of research also backing that up like with people, like even doing like an eight-week training in compassion-based practices, right? They are more able to relate to pain, other people's pain and their own pain in a different way than before they did that. And this is really important. Another really important thing is um, that to really to be aware that the neural networks underlying the effects of empathy and compassion are very different. Because empathy actually recruits negative emotions in people, right? It is often excruciating, excruciating to feel other people's pain, right? Like compassion elicits positive feelings. And this is to circle back with the question that I started out with, is like, do you know that? Are you aware of that, that when you're really feeling compassion when you're with somebody, it actually is very positive, right? It's a feeling, and of course, sometimes it's, of course, this bittersweet thing, because, of course, the pain is also in there, but it often can give us a profound sense of connection and love, right? And something really that opens us up into something bigger, like we've talked about here in the last few days, right? that we're giving up our small sense of self, like this is me and I have to, pre to protect this, right? I open that up and I include, I include the other person or really the other group of people. So it helps, again, it helps me and it helps the other. I had a just in one of my recent MBSR classes, I had a woman who was a caregiver of a chronically very severely sick partner. And she completely hated her situation, hated him for being sick, hated herself for not being able to make him happy or make, him, make his pain go away, feeling very guilty for feeling all of that, bottling it all up. Right? And so that was the situation, because then she was like, well, it's not his fault, so she was trying not to let him feel that, but guess what? <laughs> right? And so with MBSR, she really got in contact with um, like self-compassion and also equanimity. It's just like, this is beyond, I can't make this go away for you. Right? However much I want this, I can't make you happy, I can't take this pain away. And how can I be with that, right? And then she said um, that her husband, who hadn't really, I mean, he wasn't a big talker, obviously, I mean, for, I mean, at least the way she shared that. So he wouldn't say there wasn't a lot of communication going on between the two of them anymore. Um, but then she said, you know what, what he said, she told me that after one of the classes, and he said, you know what he said to me yesterday? He said, thank you for not being so angry anymore. 
right? So, next thing I want to um, share is, because there's a lot of confusion around that often, is um, the difference between self-compassion and self-pity. Um, because often it feels like, isn't that the same? Or are we like paying all this attention to ourselves and wallow in our pain? And um, so just the difference between self-pity and self-compassion is that, said that a little bit in my guidance this morning, um, that self-pity closes down, right? Self-pity reinforces our smallness, right? We talked about our smallness here. And our smallness is painful. And self-pity says, why me? Poor me. This shouldn't be happening to me. That's the whole thing that Norman talked about yesterday. Like, it's all about me, all about me, and it shouldn't be happening to me. And, mm, well, sometimes it's nice to do a little bit of that, but at some point, actually, it, it goes nowhere. It actually does not make us feel better. So, self-compassion does actually the opposite, right? And why does it do the opposite? Because it really has this component of the shared humanity in it. Right? Remember, so the first one is we are aware this is painful. The second step is to say like, yeah, but this is not just me. This is actually part of the whole package of being in this body and in this life. And guess what? Thousands or maybe millions of people know exactly what my pain feels like. So it's not an abstract thing, right? No matter what it is, you, other people have feel, felt that before. Other people, maybe in this room, made, might, might feel the exact same thing, right? And what we do with that is, instead of saying like, me, 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 no, 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 this is unfair, we go like, yes, yes, it still hurts, but it's very different, right? And as we do this, right, so we are really liberating ourselves from our small contracted self. And that in itself, if, even if nothing has changed, feels so much different, feels so much better, right? Because often what it is, what hurts the most is that we feel alone and we feel isolated and we feel that nobody gets this, right? And I think this is probably one of the worst feelings that we can have because it feels like we're cast out of our tribe, right? Which usually means that if we're cast out of our tribe, we're going to die because we can't survive by ourselves. Which is, of course, also at the cause, at the, um, the core of shame, right? When we're contracting into... Like, I'm not worth being part of my human group, my tribe. And um, Norman very beautifully writes in his book, um, our very difficulties and sufferings, when we hold them the right way, can be wedges to pry open our smallness. I love that. Right? So we can really use the pain and the suffering and say, like, I'm going to use that, right? I can use that kind of, take it and just like, ook, like, stab it further in, like, really rub it in, or just say, like, no, no, I use that. I actually have a choice. I can use that. I want to pry open. I want to break open the smallness because it hurts. It hurts. Um, a dear friend of mine, also a meditator, she, um, her son, of whom she's super proud, um, who's a journalist, um, he's adventurous, and so he said yes when he was asked by his um, big newspaper to be the correspondent for Afghanistan. And so he was going to Afghanistan, and she was trying to not freak out. Really, really, really hard for her. And so what she did is she fervently prayed for his safety. She's also a Jewish practitioner, so she used the Buddhist practices, the Jewish practices and everything and praying. Loving kindness, compassion, and yeah. And then at some point she said, and then I realized how ridiculous it was to pray for the safety of one son. 
And he just said, didn't make any sense, right? What about all the other sons, about the other daughters who are just as much in danger as her son, right? And then what she did is like, she's like, all right, right? And this is the breaking open of the smallness to realizing it doesn't make any sense, right? What's, what, what does that mean, safety of one person? Of course, like it's your son, but what about all the other people? And what does that mean? You can't just keep one person safe in an unsafe environment. And then she said, and then of course I started praying like that all the sons, all the daughters, all the people, all the living beings in Kabul and Afghanistan to be safe. And you can see how that could easily just be made bigger. Like, why Kabul and Afghanistan, right? I mean, there are so many other places where people are suffering and don't feel safe, right? And are not safe and are being harmed, right? And suddenly again, it goes like, kaboom! And like your whole heart just flies open. It cannot stay small at some point anymore, right? So... um, I want to shift gears just a little bit um, and want to move more towards the slogans that we have started to work with. So the mind training here. And um, I know you worked with see everything as a dream, rest in the openness of mind. We've worked with the four, with the preliminary steps. We worked with the four thoughts, uh, the prepare, the mind and heart. And then I've been thinking a lot about like what is actually so appealing about slogans. There is something about like a short phrase, a pithy phrase, something that puts something, it's snappy, it's something, it catches something in the mind. And they trigger associations, like a life lesson or a concept, right? And um, I think they also feel a need for simplification and help us make sense of something. And um, so, of course, this also slogan is like, good things come in small packages, right? (laughs) So someone puts something really small that just like actually points to something that's quite big. And, And we can actually start looking at like other slogans in our life. So slogans, if these slogans work well for us, there are also, of course, other slogans that have worked quite, um, successfully in our lives before, right? So, advertising is one. Political slogans like Obama's Yes We Can, right? So that's just something that brings like a whole message with it. Or the Black Lives Matter movement, right? It's very catchy and we all know, like we have a, or I definitely have an emotional response to that. Poems or songs are important um, sources of personal slogans, right? I have a lot of, I'm sure you have too, either song lines or whole songs or um, lines of poems. If you like poetry, like sometimes it's whole poems or it's just like a line and you just go through life, something happens and boom, here's the poem, the slogan, right? And it goes like, oh yeah, right. And it really touches something in us and it steers something in us and it reminds us of something, right? Um, proverbs, of course, like from our upbringing and culture, what your mother, father, grandparent used to say, like the early bird catches the worm, right? Good things come to those who wait. Um, just wait for the other shoe to drop, right? Like one of my mothers, like what doesn't kill you make you stronger. That was a big one for me growing up. Now it's made into a song and I'm sure it will inspire a whole generation of women, actually mostly women, I guess, in a whole other way. I hopefully in a, a little bit kinder way than it <laughs> inspired me. Um, so, but let's just get a little bit more intimate with that, right? So this kind of like, well, not so really close to the heart. Have you, over the last few days, come in contact with a more intimate mind slogan? Like something that if you're in a certain situation just pops into your mind? And it's often not very kind. Yeah? Anybody? So, and it often influences our mood or behavior in quite a big way. And I'll just give you some examples. Maybe you relate to some of those. Is you're so stupid. You're worthless. You will never dot, 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 insert something negative. You will always dot, 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 insert something negative. 
You're clumsy, you can't move, you're too fat, you're too old, you're too ugly. You're unlovable, you're a fraud, you're an imposter. You kind of get the list. And I really think that are also slogans, right? So there's things that we, for whatever reason, something happens, this comes up, and it shapes how we are feeling and how we're behaving in that moment that comes after we've heard that in our hearts or our minds. And really good question to ask yourself, so how am I feeling when I say that to myself? How am I with myself? How do I treat myself when I'm in the grip of that? And it can be quite strong at times. And how am I behaving around other people when I'm in that grip? And then the question is, why do we stick with these negative slogans? What makes them so appealing? And it seems to be that humans like some things to be simple or appear simple, because we really, I think, deeply dislike uncertainty. Really dislike uncertainty. So when there are too many unknowns, we tend to find an apparently simple explanation or solution. We can definitely see that in our political arena these days. Um, great example of um, behavior, and I think we're all kind of doing that, is like from, I don't know, like early, um, behavior rat studies. So, had two groups of rats, and they were treating one group of rats not so nicely, so basically giving them electroshocks in um, unpredictable intervals, right? So, they were kind of really jumpy, stressed out, because they could never, they couldn't predict when the next one would come, right? And then they had like another group of rats that are, they treated them really nicely, got them food, and they were just fine and normal rats. So. Then what they did is they like basically put all the rats, opened the cages, got all the rats out, right? Left the cages there. And the rats were basically having, um, I don't know, like rat um, heaven, like with playthings and food, and so they were entertaining themselves. And then at some point they would scare them, like, right? Big sound. What would all the rats do? all the rats would go back into their cages. And you would think, like, isn't that stupid? Wouldn't the rats who had been shocked in these cages never ever go back into these cages again? You would think so, right? But that's not how it works. Because what we do is, or what rats do, or like what we all do as animals, and when we are scared, we become more like animals. Our behavior becomes more like that. It's more simplified. It becomes into the lower regions of the brain. They, we go back to what we know, right? Because that is predictable. So even if we know it's bad, we go back to that. And I think this is why we often stick with behavior or in situations that we know it's not helpful, it's painful, and yet, this is what we know, and this is what we will go back to. Because that is, we prefer that over the uncertainty of something new, right? And so working with slogans that actually match our intentions and deepest values for ourselves um, can truly be life-transforming. So we can become aware of the slogans that might not be so helpful and then say like, you know, I actually, I'm inviting some new slogans or something new into my life. And then working with these slogans and working with different slogans over time can really be life transforming. Because we say like, this is a slogan I choose. And I want to really implant that in my brain and the way that it works is whatever we will pay a lot of attention to that will grow stronger. It's actually quite amazing that we will grow areas of our brains that didn't exist before, right? Just by our paying attention. And so John Kabat-Zinn that says, like, I love that, when whatever you do on a regular basis, you get good at. So if you're angry a lot, you get really good at being angry. Have you noticed that? 
So it's really the question like, what are you really training yourself at without even knowing that? And is that what you want? Or is there maybe another way, another thing that you would rather train, rather be, become really good at? So how do we change? So the most promising change motivator that I know actually is self-compassion. So to motivate ourselves with support, love and cheer compared with meanness, threats and punishment, um, when do you think you are more likely to go out and take a risk? When you are more likely to risk failure? When you internally yell at yourself? Um, or if you put a hand on your back, figuratively? <laughs> and so, go honey, you got this. Or I got you, right? Feels very different. So this is... Um, poem by David White. We shape ourselves to fit this world, and by the world are shaped again, the visible and the invisible, working together in common cause to produce the miraculous. I'm thinking of the way the intangible air passed at speed round the shaped wing easily holds our weight. So may we in this life trust to those elements we have yet to see or imagine and look for the true shape of our own self by forming it well to the great intangibles about us. So, for the last part of my talk, I want to move a little bit more into the um, slogans, the Lujong slogans. Mm, and so the point number three is transform bad circumstances into the path. And this is quite an opportunity, right? Because this is, we would so much rather just get rid of those bad circumstances. But guess what? Here they are. And we can choose to turn towards them, as we have been talking about over these last days. And you have been practicing the turning towards, turning towards, turning towards with kindness. And I have to say, like, that's my personal take, we can discuss that. So the title says bad circumstances, but in my opinion it also means good circumstances or all circumstances. Um, maybe it needs to be spelled out, like, no, no, also bad circumstances. Um, but when we are to keep in mind um, also really joy and lightness. So I think we have to be careful that when we are like doing all this turning towards suffering, that we can kind of forget that they actually the other half of the equation. <laughs> and um, so when we're considering these four thoughts in the preliminaries, it can be also helpful to add why being human is so precious. Because as human beings, we actually have the exact right amount of suffering and joy that will motivate us to practice, right? If we are only experiencing joy, then we are in heaven. And heaven is not a good place to practice the Dharma, I'm sorry to say. We're just too busy. <laughs> <laughs> enjoying like how fantastic everything is, which of course will over time make us not be in heaven anymore, right? Um, and if we're only experiencing pain and there's never a release, then we're in hell. And hell is also a place that is not very conducive to practice. So this is why the mixture really like we have enough suffering to not get deluded into no it will all be fine right so we can use that but it's also has the sweet parts of practice or the sweet parts of life in it and actually the inclusion are more in some of the um, slogans or points that are yet to come like make practice your whole life 
uh, living with ease in a crazy world. <laughs> so I just uh, want to go um, briefly into some of the slogans. There are more. So one is, um, be grateful to everyone. And what that points to really is to appreciate complete interdependence. Right? So that goes back to really like we're not really separate on some levels. And I think the way or a good way to feel more into this or as a start is this is not only be grateful to everyone but also to everything or to appreciate interdependence. So in MBSR or I know they've done this here, my guest was sharing that with raisins for many years in the retreats doing the mindful eating with a raisin. I mean, if you have done that, mindful raisin eating, yay, <laughs> right? Um, so one way we can do that with the raisin is actually at some point, so we take the raisin, and so one thing is just to work with the senses to really get us into the senses, appreciate the different senses, and notice how the mind can like really forget all that other stuff that's going on while we're just looking at this teensy thing that we have seen so many times before and have never really seen before. But we can also at some point really open that up into an interconnectedness exercise, right? So Tignatan does a lot of that. So basically then saying like, is there a belly button or a stem in this thing that you're holding? And you're like, what? Right? A lot of people have never even noticed that actually sometimes there are little stems. And when you do that, you go, oh, that means that it grew somewhere. And then you can go into if they grew somewhere, that means like somebody actually took the care to grow this for me. And then, right, so there, there were farmers, right? Or, and then people who harvested this. And then of course it was the sun and the earth and the soil and the rain, everything that went into growing this. And then the people who, well, harvested it or put it into trucks, brought it to factory or um, did all the things that you need to do with them in order to make them into actually be in your hands. It's quite amazing because these people need to eat, right? And they have need to get clothes and they have families, they have friends. And so you can start really with a tiny raisin and just open that up into being everything. It's quite amazing. It can suddenly open up the entire world in your hand in this teensy little thing. And you go like, wow, and I'm eating that. Wow, that's pretty cool, right? And then your body does its body thing with it, right? And then the goes back into some goes back into the earth or goes back into the water system. And so it goes around and around. And this is just with one raisin. And then we can like we touched in the different talks already on this, like how like we are breathing the same air, right? We are only here because of the people who took care of us. Right? Even if they didn't do a perfect job, we're still here. We made it to this point, right? And then all these people were supported. And so it's like so interconnected. And if we are looking at things that come our way more in this way, that can really open the door hugely into being grateful. Like, wow, this is pretty amazing. And... Again, we don't have to, and if we do that with people, it can be quite interesting um, how that our change can change the relationship. And I'll give you an easy example. Is, um, so I um, teach classes at our um, VA in, in Los Angeles and to veterans and also to um, training clinicians there. And um, in one of the buildings where I go in and out several times a week, there's a clerk, there's a new clerk, and this new clerk is not the most um, socially connected clerk. And so the first few times when I walked in there, he would not look up from his desk, which actually is his job. <laughs> Wouldn't do that. And so first one, I think like, it's just a little bit of like bristling, saying like, he should be greeting me, right? Like, I'm somebody here, and as I walk in, and it's his job, and he's getting paid for actually being friendly to people like me and everybody who walks in, by the way. He wasn't doing that. So, and then I thought, well, why isn't he doing that? And then I felt a little bit, and I kind of, in a very um, loving way, I made him my little project. So, <laughs> said, like, I will love you up. You just wait. <laughs> and 
So of course I know his name, and so every time I walked in there, I was just saying like, hey, and using his name, how are you doing? Like, how's your day going? And I mean, not, not over top, I wasn't bringing him presents or anything, but just being like extra friendly and in a really nice way, because I, I actually really like him. He has a very nice vibe around him. And um, first he was like, like <laughs> what does she want? <laughs> and I, I kept just doing that, and guess what? Right? After doing that for a while, he started greeting me when I was walking in. Um, a little bit later, he used my name when I was walking in. And, and just a couple of weeks ago, then I walked in on a Monday and he said, like, Good morning, Dr. Wolf. How was your weekend? And I was like, Great. And then we just chatted a little bit. And um, Again, this is something I chose to do that. I could have just stayed again in my smallness and saying like, well, if he doesn't want that, I don't need that, right? If he doesn't want to do his job, that's kind of his thing. And it really turned into something that made me very happy. And I think it makes him happy too, because he feels the connection as well. Um, so another one, next one is, and I will not take it completely apart, but um, so it has several parts. Do good, avoid evil, appreciate your lunacy, and pray for help. That's a nice one, right? Do good, avoid evil, very straightforward. Appreciate your lunacy. It's like, yeah, we are pretty crazy at times. Um, but what I want to um, focus a little bit on is pray for help. And... Um, I definitely had the same reaction to Norman's putting the G word into um, <laughs> into the book, saying like, "What does the G word do in there?" Like, we're Buddhists; we don't have a god. And um, <laughs> and then I just sat with that, and actually, and I noticed actually something in me liked that after I got over my first kind of indignation of like, this is not the right thing, right? Um, and sometimes it's like you have to actually have to confront me with something and let me just like do my little sing thing around that and then I can come down and um, actually open up and learn something. And what I realized is like maybe other people here in the room is it was like Christianity didn't work for me, right? So I closed that door. It wasn't helpful. Right, and so I was like, well, Buddhism doesn't have a god. But I noticed actually I like that, that maybe there is something god-like in there, and the way that we talk about this, this whole idea about absolute compassion actually makes total sense to me. Like, if we call that god, I'm all in, right? that actually works for me. And so I feel a little bit of settling around like an issue that I wasn't even aware that that was up for me. So thank you, Norman, for that. But what I noticed about the pray for help is that's the problem. If you don't have a God, you don't really have anybody to ask for help, right? And then, I don't know about you, but I grew up, the message was, like, you're on your own. You have to do it by yourself, right? Which was very helpful in many ways, because I learned to be really independent and do things by myself, but I completely unlearned to ask for help. And so, of course, anybody would ever ask me, how are you doing? So I'm fine. Oh, I'm doing just fine, right? And usually I would believe that. Right? <laughs> and I'm very capable. I'm very, very capable. And, um, but, and at some point I noticed, like, it feels a little bit unbalanced. <laughs> and it might be actually nice to be able to ask for help or to pray for help. So um, a while ago I actually started really more with this, like, okay, I'm just opening it up to the possibility. I have no idea what that actually is that could be helping, but maybe just asking helps. So let me just try that. And I noticed that really doing just that has changed something in me. 
So basically, I will very often, in the beginning of my sitting, I will settle myself, connect with the breath, and then ask for help. And don't ask me whom I'm asking for help. (laughs) I'm not sure. But just, um, just the process of doing that helps. It's quite amazing. Because, again, what it does, I think it is very similar to what we're doing in the self-compassion, is we are opening, we are calming, right? And that just that actually makes me feel more safe and more open. And at times it feels like I actually get help. From whom? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe from myself, right? Maybe from just opening up more or just letting like the bigger, right? Letting go of the smallness and just allowing more of everything in. And last thing, another slogan is whatever you meet is the path. So I think again this goes for negative and positive. And again what's interesting, so if we're going back to um, our need for safety and control, it's quite interesting because we do a little trick here, right? So we have the saying like we can't control the waves but we can learn how to surf. So what we're doing is we are taking control of not being in control. That's a nice one, right? Um, So we can choose to do that. We can choose to turn towards that and to say like, I'm open, I'm willing to work with this and see what comes up. Instead of saying like, no, I don't want this, right? And really surfing is a lot about mindfulness, right? So I'm not a surfer, but I boogie board. Um, And what you do is you have to just really watch this wave, right? Not going like, oh my God, the last one, that was one, right? Then you're just, then you're lost, right? But you have to see this one. Is this one you want to take or do you want to wait? And then, um, so it's very skillful. You really have to ride the waves and see what is appropriate in that situation. So it's situational, right? I can't decide that ahead of time, what I'm going to do with the next wave. I have maybe plans, but then the wave will actually let me know. And the really important thing is, um, which is also really interesting in this whole arena of um, what we talk about letting go, letting be, surrendering, is when a bigger wave comes than to surrender. And what that means is you make yourself as soft and pliable as you can. You don't fight. Because if you fight, you get stiff and the wave will just throw you around. And basically, the more loose and ragdolly you are, the faster you will come back up. And I think that is also really a nice way how to sometimes behave in our meditation, right? We feel like really a big wave comes, can we surrender to that and not get in the way, not try to manage? And it's scary. It's scary. It's a scary practice. But yet, is it better to not get out there, right? And not get familiar with this. Because the other thing really is, if you've been done that a couple of times, if you really have surrendered numerous times and you come back up and out, that gives you confidence that you can do that again, right? We learn that. We learn to be with difficulties. And we have to do everything for a first time. And it's hard. And then we do it again. Then we go like, oh, I've been here before. And then we do it again and right, so it actually does does become easier over time. Um, so, conclusion: <laughs> in the face of suffering, compassion is really our ally that can lead or will lead into love and connection with ourselves and with others. And at the same time, we also have to be just as attentive to the absence of suffering and the absence of pain. I actually do that as part of my daily practice. I'm 
in the very lucky situation right now that I don't have physical pain and I'm so aware of it, so aware of it. Like every day I go like, wow, no pain, this is amazing. Because I know it will change, right? It has changed in the past, it will change again. And that is definitely one of my daily blessings. So also to be grateful about the absence of something is a really beautiful practice. So we practice joy and gratitude, and we practice, or let's put it this way, as we practice compassion as an expression of love in the face of suffering, we practice sympathetic joy as an expression of love in the face of happiness and beauty. And just want to tell you, I don't know if you, maybe you've all seen that, um, I haven't seen that before, is if you look at the cracks in the concrete in front of the Meta building here, it's amazing. You have the cracks in the concrete and you have like a little rock garden there of an arrangement of different plants that are all about this big. Really beautiful. And it's so easy to overlook. Right? So if we don't look, if we're not aware, we'll miss it, we don't see it, and we go like, meh, concrete road, right? <laughs> and we think about it in how many areas of your life you're doing that. So I will end with one more poem. That's a strong one, but one I actually really like. I like all my poems. Um, it's called A Brief for the Defense. And it's from Jack Gilbert. Sorrow everywhere. Slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else, with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There's laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship, anchored late at night in the tiny port, looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three sharded cafes and one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as the rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. Let's just sit for a moment.
So thank you for your attention and thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.